Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. You know, it's been a long time since I've been up here. And for those of you that know me, I usually start out by trying to find our piano player a husband. So today's no exception, all right? So I know for some of you, you're kind of new here, so I'm just going to give you a quick background. I was up here doing this exact same thing. She was playing beautiful, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if she married a guy with the last name Beethoven? So I said, I was going to start looking for one. It's really hard. If she would have liked the name Smith or McDonald, it would have been a lot easier, I think. But anyway, so I've been kind of teasing her a little bit about that. And um, one day I was just kind of thinking, I was or praying, I don't know, whatever you call it. But I just kind of asked, you know, well, God, why, why haven't you got her a husband yet? It's been a long time. And this voice kind of came to me and goes, well, Maybe she doesn't want one, you know. So, um, and then I, I started thinking, you know, well, if I had a daughter, would I be able to give her away, you know? I mean, Miss Beethoven, she's, she's sweet, she's talented, she's extremely, and I'll use that word, extremely forgiving, because most of the time when I'm up here, she's hiding under the chair somewhere, so. But I don't have any daughters, never did. I'll end up with granddaughter, I mean, grandsons and sons, three sons, four grandsons. So now my wife was very close to her mother and her grandmother, and she had a wonderful relationship and always wanted to have like a granddaughter, but it just never happened that way. You know, Reba was hoping that she could have a granddaughter so she could have those little tea parties and talk about fluffy dresses and pretty shoes and all that kind of stuff. And but instead, all she's got is a grandma, I mean, a grandson, excuse me, that comes up and says, Grandma, look at the bug I found in your planter box, you know, so. But I'd like to ask a question, all you guys that are here. How many of you guys, show of hands, um, ask permission before you married the girl you have now? You went up and said, I'd like to have, i got to take my glass off to see, one, two, three, four. Wow, not many of you. Few of there's probably a little less, a little less, maybe a quarter of you. All right. Well, that that's. I, I'm in the uh, category of I didn't ask either because I thought, oh man, if you, I, I'm not gonna have him have a chance of saying no, so I just married and said, oh by the way, so that's kind of how I did it. But I, I I thought, well, you know, I don't have a daughter, but you know. What if a young man came up to me, if I did have one, and and asked for a hand in marriage? You know, and I've been retired here for about a year, so i got a lot of time to think about stuff that really don't matter. But, uh, so I ran through a couple of scenarios in my mind, and 
I'll give you just a couple, all right? So the first scenario is, it goes like this. You know, I'm in the house, I'm cleaning my gun. <laughs> I get a knock on the door. And, you know, I open the door. There stands some, I don't mind the mush. I don't know what it is. But uh, he says, Mr. Buffalo, can I marry your daughter? So after I stir at him for a minute, I look at him and I go, no. And get off my lawn. You know, it's just... That's the first scenario, probably my favorite. Uh, the next scenario is, I get a knock on the door. Mr. Buffalo, can I marry your daughter? Well, this time I'm a little nicer, I invite him in. And then I sit down with him, I say, before I answer that question, I got a question for you. And here's my question. Why? Why do you want to marry my daughter? And he'd probably say something, being he has a mind of mush, it'd be something like, well, she's young, she's smart, she's beautiful, you know. And my response to him would be, well, that's that's really not too hard to love. I don't know if you notice that, but it's... Uh... So let me ask you another question, okay? Now, let's just suppose, just hypothetically, okay, you, you want to worry my... you want to marry my daughter, but... Instead of her being, you know, young and smart and beautiful, let's say, for example, she's old and senile and looks like she escaped from a convalescent hospital. You know? I think you get the idea of why I'm asking that question, don't you? Because after this guy marries my daughter, you know, maybe someday you won't love her anymore. Maybe he'll get tired. Maybe he'll say, well, I want a younger wife or a smarter wife or a more beautiful wife. And You know, if you're going to marry my daughter, I want it to be like for life, for love, you know, no matter how she changes, right? I want somebody that's going to love her forever. And that's the kind of love Jesus has for us and has, and we're his bride. You know, in Ephesians 5.26, it says, Husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it's followed up by, Ephesians 5.27, and it says this, so that he might present the church as bride to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now we as Christ's bride, we know we're not perfect. You know, we're justified, we're sanctified, but we're not glorified yet. So we still got some of those spots and wrinkles and blemishes. But this thing we do know, and that's that Jesus loves us. And we know that because he hung on a cross just like that when we got behind us here. So we know Jesus loves us. That's a given. But today I want to ask that question is, is how much do you love Jesus? So I'd like to turn in your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 36 through 50. So Luke 7, 36 through 50. And it reads this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head 
and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. I mean, with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who touched him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender who had two debtors, one owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, from whom counseled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You have given me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, that was a few months back when I was just reading that stuff on my own, and I just kind of paused for a moment, and I just thought to myself, well, how much do I love Jesus? And I would ask you the same question. If somebody came up to you and said, how much do you love Jesus? What would you say to him? But before we get to that question, I'm just going to kind of go back, and we're going to do a little verse by verse here and get a little more detail. So we'll start out in verse 36, and it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So what do we know? Jesus gets invited to eat at a Pharisee's house. Now there's three main characters in this story. There's the Pharisee, there's Jesus, and there's the woman. Now we know two of them are sinners. One's a woman, one's a Pharisee, and one is sinless, and obviously that's Jesus. We also know there's other people at this dinner party because in verse 49 it talks about them, but they're just kind of nameless people that show up. What do we know about the Pharisee? Well, we know that he was a sinner, but he didn't think he was one, I'm sure. You can assume that Simon wants to either entrap or find some reason to accuse Jesus of something. They usually don't invite him over to be friends, right? They're usually trying to trick Jesus into something to make him look bad. Because fairies always have that kind of attitude that, you know, they're just mostly just have contempt for people who aren't like them. Just like the Pharisee in Luke 18, he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, you know. I'm too good, and you guys are just not even close to my caliber of holiness. That's how they think. So a Pharisee would never invite an unclean person into his home and uh, I don't think for any other occasion as far as that goes. Now, what do we know about the woman? Well, the things we know about her, number one, is that she was a sinner. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how she earned that title, a sinner. Most people think she probably was a prostitute, because that's one of the you know, sins that we all get accused people of. And 
because we don't do that. And it's also interesting to note that through the narrative, the woman that was known as a sinner, she never said a single word. All you hear is what she did, but she never said anything. And what do we know about Jesus? Well, obviously we know he's sinless, but he's also, if you read the text, that he's the one that can forgive sins. And then you have the no-names. They're in verse 49. They're at the party. And these could be dignitaries or just maybe friends of Simon the Pharisee. We don't know, but they're basically just kind of spectators. They just want to come in and listen to the conversation between the Pharisee and Jesus. So that's everybody at the dinner party. And now Jesus comes into the Pharisee's house and takes his place at the table. Now, we don't know how long Jesus is sitting at the table before this woman comes in, but in verse 37 is where she comes in. I'll read, it says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she had reclined, excuse me, when she leaned, learned, yeah, that he was reclined at the table in the Pharisee's house, he brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And an alabaster is just a real soft stone. You can carve it. It's real, you know, a beautiful thing. And that's where the ointment was. Now, we don't really know how the woman knew that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. It's probably just word of mouth. But we do know that she came prepared because she brought that alabaster flask of ointment. So you can kind of get the idea that she's coming and she wants to do something really special for Jesus. Now, there's something else that we can know about this woman. It's kind of maybe a little subtle, but that is I think she had a lot of courage. You know, she didn't seem to care if everyone at the party knew that her nickname was the sinner. I mean, how would you like to go to a party and, you know, this is Bill and that's Susie and this is Frank and that's sinner, you know? I don't think I'd want to go to a party like that. But in verse 38, we see what the woman is doing there. It says, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now you can see this woman, she's really, really emotional about this experience she's having with Jesus. And I've been to a lot of weddings a lot of times. I've seen a lot of brides cry, but I've never seen a bride cry so much that she could wash the husband's feet with him. You know, is this woman, is she crying because she knows that she's a wicked sinner? Is she seeking forgiveness? You kind of have to wonder. And maybe, maybe she overheard someone, you know, where Jesus told that person, your sins are forgiven, and maybe that's what she wants in her life. She wants to be forgiven. The Bible really doesn't tell us how she knows about Jesus. But the one thing we do know is that she seems to really love him, and she's just overwhelmed. Now, in verse 39, we get the picture of the Pharisee. He's getting a little upset about this whole event. In verse 39, it says, Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touched him. For she's a sinner. Now, it's, I think, blatantly clear here that the Pharisee has nothing but contempt for the woman and I don't think he has a very much high regard for Jesus either. But I do think it's kind of funny or ironic that the Pharisee, he says these comments to himself. He has no idea that, you know, Jesus could read his mind. 
And I think sometimes we forget that, right? So a lot of times, you know, we don't say it, but Jesus hears it, right? So we got to remember that. And I also think there are a lot of times when we see someone in sin and we quickly condemn them for their sin long before we ever notice the sin in our own lives. And that's what I think this Pharisee Simon was doing. But then Jesus, he asked him, he says, answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now Jesus knows what Simon is thinking about, and we hear Jesus' words. I think we kind of let him know that he's in trouble here. I mean, how many times have your parents, you know, you've done something bad, and then they look at you and go, hey, come here, i got something to say to you. You know you're in trouble, right? So Simon says, I think he knows, all right, I'm in trouble, so say it, teacher, I'm ready to hear what you got to say. And in verse 41 and 42, Jesus begins to tell Simon a story. And this story is an object lesson. So Jesus, after giving this object lesson, ask him a question. So we'll read that in verse 41. It says, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. And you remember, a denarii is a day's wage. So 500 could be two or three years. I don't know the math, but that's a lot. So if you made 50000 a year, that's $150,000. That's a pretty big debt. And the other guy owed fifty, so maybe a few months' worth. But it says, when he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, obviously, now this, this is not a trick question. This is what a lot of us would call one of those no-brainers, right? I mean, the answer is pretty obvious here. But Simon answers in verse 43. He says, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the large debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. I think Simon, he, he sees where Jesus is going with this because he's almost kind of like reluctant to even answer the obvious, you know. His response by saying, well, you know, I suppose the one with the larger debt, that's the one who's going to love more. And it's almost kind of like, well, well, duh, Simon. I mean, this ain't rocket science, is it? I mean, obviously, that's the right answer. Now that Jesus has gotten Simon to admit the obvious, I think he really lets him have it in the next verses in 44 through 46. In 44, it says, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. For you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. I think Jesus kind of said that pretty nicely when he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I think if I was there, I might say it more like this. I'd say, Simon, do you see this disgraceful, no good for nothing, sinful, rotten person? Because that's who you think she is. Well, Jesus begins to tell Simon that he isn't done with him. And when he starts telling Simon what this woman has done and what he hasn't done. And it's a pretty strong rebuke. He tells Simon, you gave me no water for my feet. I mean, that's a pretty big insult in that time and culture. That's what you did when you came over. It, you know, just like Jesus with the disciples. He came in and 
None of the disciples would volunteer for that crummy job, so Jesus went down and did it himself. But this woman, you remember, you know, she didn't need a bucket of water to wash Jesus' feet. The water she had came from the tears. And she didn't need a rag to dry Jesus' feet. She just used her hair. Now, Jesus told Simon that he didn't even kiss him when he came into the house. And that was supposed to be a, a very common greeting, just like if you were given a handshake. But it's basically the Pharisee just kind of saw Jesus and just walked away and just let Jesus come in. No greeting, no common courtesy, nothing. So Jesus is telling Simon, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet since I got here. Now, kissing someone's feet, you know, when you think about it, that's got to be probably one of the most filthiest things you could ever want to do. And if you don't think so, just look down a couple rows and say, would I want to kiss those feet, right? So it's, it's not right. But again, Simon treats his guests very badly by not giving Jesus any oil for his head. But the woman brings out, what, the flask of ointment and rubs Jesus' feet. So again, you almost get the impression that Simon doesn't think much of Jesus any more than he does the sinful woman. Now in verse 47, Jesus gets to the point he wants Simon to understand. Verse 47 says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, how much did this Pharisee, this guy Simon, love Jesus? Well, obviously, the way he treated him, he didn't love him very much, did he? But here's the question. I'll go back to it. I asked earlier, how much do you love Jesus? What would you say if someone asked you that question? What would you say? Would you say, well, I've done a lot of things for Jesus. I mean, my ministry is just packed all week. Well, the woman knew she was a sinner. She did a lot of things for Jesus, unlike Simon. But does doing things for Jesus prove that you love him? Well, it doesn't disprove it, but it really doesn't prove it either, does it? Simon, he thought you could earn your way to heaven. I mean, no one could know the law or follow it better than a Pharisee, right? But Jesus said, I, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you can't go to heaven just because you love Jesus. And you can't go to heaven because you obey Jesus, because no matter how hard you try, you're always going to never do it perfectly. Now, I heard a pastor once, he, he said something like this, he when somebody would come up and ask him, say, I'd like to be baptized, he'd ask him this question first before he'd answer him. He'd say, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? And if the person said yes, he'd say, I can't baptize you because you don't understand how much of a sinner you are. You know, and, and you think about that. It kind of makes sense, like in First Timothy, where Paul said that he was the chief of sinners, and yet he's probably one of the greatest Christians that ever walked on this planet, right? You couldn't find a better one. But I think with Paul, he was so close to God, and the, the closer you get to God, the more your sin is exposed. And that's why you feel like a oh, bad sinner. Now, this woman who we only know by as the sinner... She understood not only that she was a sinner, but I think she also understood she needed a Savior. 
She needed her sins forgiven. And in verse 48, we hear the words of Jesus that I think we all long to hear all the time. And it's verse 48, it says, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Now these words of Jesus are a whole lot sweeter than the words he said to people in Matthew chapter 7. And there he said, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus said to these people, they're saying, well, didn't we do a lot of mighty works in your names? But Jesus is trying to make it clear that the, the deeds you do, they don't save you. Now, before we get to what saves us, there's some people at the dinner table, and they start talking to each other. And in verse 49, it says this, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Now, again, I would love to be in that room because if somebody in there came up and told me, you know, say, hey, who is that? I would love to say, well, that's that's Jesus. That's the guy that created the entire known universe. And I'm sure they would look at me like, how many times have you been to the punch bowl tonight? I don't know. But, but that really isn't the, the answer they want, is it? The answer they want is, is how can this person, Jesus, forgive sins? That would, it would be a while, I think, before they really could understand that fully, how they would forgive sins. At the time, I don't even think the disciples of Jesus really fully understood it. I don't think the woman who was a sinner, I don't think she fully understand how Jesus was going to accomplish all this. And when you get right down to it, it's hard for us, even as much as we know about it, which is a lot clearer than they had, but it's still kind of hard to understand. I mean, how can a God who fills the universe also be a man like one of us? How can, one, how can someone be fully God and fully man? Well, I believe Jesus is God and man, but, uh, you know, don't ask me to explain it. Pastor Bear will be back next week, so you can talk to him about that one. But in verse 50, Jesus kind of helps us out a little bit. And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it really boils down to this. You have to trust God, what Jesus did on the cross. Because from the very beginning, the only way anybody could be saved is through faith in God, right? That's what Ephesians 2.8 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm not sure who said this. I think this quote is from Steve Lawson, but I like it. I wrote it in my Bible. It says this. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift to the guilty. So what's the measuring rod by which we can know how much we love Jesus? Well, Jesus gave the answer to Simon. He said, you'll know how much you love me by how much you've been forgiven. So I'm going to ask you the question, how much have you been forgiven? Because I think only you know the answer. I don't know how many times you've sinned and messed up. I could give you a pretty long list. It's probably thicker than this book. But that's it. You could be forgiven like the woman. She has a lot. Or you could be forgiven like Simon. He, he can't even find sin in his life. But this, I'll, I'll tell you, 
The more you realize how much you've sinned, the more you'll know how much God has forgiven you. And the more you know how much God has forgiven you, the more you'll know how much you love him. You know, the woman in this verse, known as the sinner, had enough tears to wash Jesus' feet. But the thing is, she didn't have enough tears to wash away her own sin. There was a Puritan writer named John Flebel, and he commented on the damning effect of sin by writing this. He said, if a sinner's penitential tears were as numberless as all the drops of rain that had fallen since creation, they could not wash away a single sin. So if drops of tears running down our cheeks can't take away our sin, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what can? And I think the answer is the drops of blood running down Jesus' cheeks. As we come to the communion table this morning, we can kind of look behind the pulpit here. We can see a cross. And the nice thing about this cross is that it's empty. There's nobody hanging on it. It's not like a crucifix where you see Jesus still hanging up there. But I think sometimes we need to see Jesus on the cross just as a reminder of what Jesus had to go through so that he could say, your sins are forgiven. I remember the first time I read about the death by crucifixion. It was shocking to me. It really, like, man, what a brutal way to die. And so that's kind of what I want to do today. I want to give us just a little reminder of what it's like to be crucified. So um, I got this book. Um, maybe you've read it, A Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. This is a guy that he was a journalist and he tried to disprove Christianity. So we went around trying to interview a lot of people to uh you know, get his answers question, hoping that he was going to just totally disprove Christianity, but he didn't. But in this book, there's a he he was interviewing this guy because he thought one of the the things was was that you know maybe Jesus really didn't die on the cross, maybe he just fainted, you know, and then triumphantly, you know, they thought, okay, he rose from the grave, and really all he did was faint. So we wanted to know what dying on a cross really was like. And so we interviewed this guy, Alexander Methrel. He's an MD and a PhD. And I know this, this is going to be a little bit long, but I, I couldn't say it better than just how reading it, so I hope you'll be patient with me. But it starts out with this part. It says, the torture before the cross. It says, initially I wanted to elicit from Methrel a basic description of the events leading up to Jesus' death. So after a time of social chat, I put down my iced tea and shifted my chair to face him squarely. Could you paint a picture of what happened to Jesus, I asked. He cleared his throat. It began after the Last Supper, he said. Jesus went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, if you remember, he prayed all night. Now during the process, he was anticipating the coming events of the next day. And since he knew the amount of suffering he was going to have to endure, he was quite naturally experiencing a great deal of psychological stress. Well, I raised my hand to stop him. Whoa, now here's where skeptics have a field day. I told him. The gospel tells us that he began to sweat blood at this point. And now, come on, isn't that just a product of some overreactive imagination? Doesn't that call into question the accuracy of the writers? 
Well, unfazed, Methel shook his head. No, not at all, he replied. This is a known medical condition called hemotridosis. It's not very common, but it is associated with a high degree of psychological stress. So what happens is that the severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries in the sweat glands. As a result, there's a small amount of bleeding in the glands, and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood, just a very, very small amount. But a bit chastened, I pressed on. Did this have any effect on the body? What this did was set up the skin to be extremely fragile so that when Jesus was flogged by the Roman soldiers the next day, his skin would be very, very sensitive. Well, I thought, here we go. I braced myself for the grim images I knew were about to flood my mind. I had seen plenty of dead bodies as a journalist, casualties of car accidents, fires, criminal crime syndicate retribution, but there was something especially unnerving in hearing about someone being intentionally brutalized by executioners determined to extract maximum suffering. Tell me, I said, what was the vlogging like? Well, Myrtle's eyes never left him. Roman flogging were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. Then the whip would strike the flesh. These balls would cause deep bruises and contusions with, and would break open with each blow. The whip had pieces of sharp bone as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by a deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone on all the way from the shoulders down to the back, the buttocks, and the back of the legs. It was terrible. Mithril paused. Go on, I said. One physician who studied Roman beating said that as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third-century historian by the name of Ibius described the flogging by saying sufferers' veins were laid bare and their very muscles smoon and the bowels of the victim were open to exposure. We know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they could be crucified. At the least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into a hypovolemic shock. Well, Merthyl thrown into a medical term I didn't know. What does hypovolemic shock mean, I ask? Well, he said hypo means low, vol means volume, and emic means blood. So hypovolemic shock means the person is suffering the effects of losing a large amount of blood, the doctor explained. This does four things. First, the heart races to try to pump blood that isn't there. Second, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapsing. Third, the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is left. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty as the blood craves fluids to replace the loss of blood volume. You see evidence of this in the gospel accounts. Yes, most definitely replied, Jesus had, was, excuse me, Jesus was hypovolemic shock as he staggered up the road to the execution site at Calvary, carrying the horizontal beam of the cross. Finally, Jesus collapsed. And the Roman soldier ordered Simon to carry the cross for him. 
Later we read that Jesus said, I thirst, at which point a sip of vinegar was offered to him. Because of the terrible effects of this beating, there's no question that Jesus was already in serious critical condition even before the nails were driven through the hands and feet. Now the next little topic is, is the agony of the cross, but you can see that, you know, the cost of God's wrath is pretty brutal, isn't it? But it goes on, the agony of the cross. As distasteful as the description of flogging was, I knew that even more repugnant testimony was yet to come. That's because historians are unanimous that Jesus survived the beating that day and went on to the cross, which is where the real issue lies. These days, when condemned criminals strapped down or injected with poison or secured to a wooden chair, the subject, subject to a surge of electricity, the circumstances are highly controlled. Death comes quickly and predictably. Medical examiners carefully certify the victim's passing. From close proximity, witness scrutinize everything from beginning to end. But how certain was death by this cruel, slow, and rather inexact form of execution called crucifixion? In fact, most people aren't sure how the cross kills its victims. And without a trained medical examiner to officially attest that Jesus had died, might he have escaped the experience brutalized and bleeding and nevertheless was alive? Well, I begin to unpack the issues. What happened when he arrived at the site of crucifixion, I ask? He would have been laid down and his hands would have been nailed in an outstretched position. The horizontal beam, the cross beam, was called the patibium, and at this stage he was separated from the vertical beam, which was permanently set in the ground. I was having difficulty visualizing this. I needed more details. Nailed. With what, I asked. Nailed where? Well, the Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point. They were driven through the wrist, Mithril said, pointing about an inch or so below the left hand. So he's just pointing like right here. And um, this was a, a solid position that would lock the hand. If the nails had been driven through the palms, his weight would have caused the skin to tear and he would have fallen off the cross. So the nails went through the wrist, although this was considered part of the hand in the language of the day. And it's important to understand that the nail would have gone through a place where the medial nerve runs. And this is a large nerve going out to the hand and it would have been crushed by the nail that was being pounded in. So since I have only a rudimentary knowledge of the human anatomy, I wasn't sure what this meant. What sort of pain would this have produced, I asked. Well, let me put it this way, he replied. You know the kind of pain you feel when you bang your elbow and hit the funny bone. That's actually another nerve called the ulna nerve. It's extremely painful when you accidentally hit it. We'll picture taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve, he said, emphasizing the word squeezing as he twisted an imaginary pair of pliers. That effect would be similar to what Jesus experienced. I winced at the image and squirmed in my chair. The pain was absolutely unbearable. He continued, in fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word called excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. You think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the intense anguish caused during the crucifixion. 
At this point, Jesus was hoisted up the crossbar and was attached to a vertical stake, and then nails were driven through Jesus' feet. And again, the nerves in the feet would have been crushed, and there would have been a similar type of pain. Crushed and severed nerves were certainly bad enough, but I needed to know about the effects that hanging from a cross would have on Jesus. What stresses would have would this have put on the body? And Methril answered, first of all, his arms would have been immediately stretched, probably about six inches in length, and both soldiers would have become dislocated. You can determine this with a simple mathematical equation. The fulfillment this fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 22, which foretold the crucifixion hundreds of years before it took place, where it says, my bones are out of joint. And then the last little thing here is the cause of death. Now, Murtha had made this point graphically about the pain and dirt at the crucifixion process began, but I needed to get to what finally claims the life of a crucified victim because that's the pivotal issue in determining whether death can be faked or eluded. So I put the cause of death question directly to Merthyl. Once a person is hanging in the vertical position, he replied, crucifixion is ex essentially an agonizing slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is the stress on the muscles and the diaphragm put the chest into an inhaled position, basically in order to exhale. The individual must push up on his feet so that the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bone. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. And again, he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up anymore or breathe anymore. As the person slowed down his breathing, he got into what was called a respiratory acidosis. A carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known that he was about to have that moment of death, which is when he was able to say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then die of a cardiac arrest. It was the clearest explanation I had ever heard, death by crucifixion. Mithril wasn't done, though, even before he died. And this is important, too. The hypovolemic shot would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate that would have continued, contributed to the heart failure, resulting in a collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart, called a pericardial infusion, as well as around the lungs, called a pleural effusion. And why is that significant? Because of what happened when the Roman soldier came around and being fairly certain that Jesus was dead, confirmed it by thrusting a spear into the right side. It was probably the right side, that's not certain, but from the description it was probably the right side between the ribs. The spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart, so that when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the pericardial infusion and the pearl effusion came out. And this would have appeared of a clear fluid like water, followed by a large volume of blood, as the eyewitness John described in his gospel. Now, John probably had no idea why he saw both blood and a clear fluid come out. Certainly, that's not what an untrained person like him would have anticipated. Yet, John, John's description is consistent with modern medicine, which ex would expect to have this happen. 
At first, this would seem to give credibility to John being an eyewitness. However, there seems to be one big flaw in all of this. I pulled out my Bible and I flipped it to John 19.34. I said, wait a minute, Doc, I protested. When you carefully read what John said, he said blood and water came out. And he intentionally put the words in that order. But according to you, the clear fluid would have come out first. So there's a significant discrepancy here. Well, Myrtle smiled. I'm not a Greek scholar, he replied, but according to the people who are, the order of words in ancient Greek determined not necessarily by the sequence, but by the prominence. This means that since there was a lot more blood than water, it would have made sense for John to mention the blood first. I conceded the point, but made a middle note to confirm it myself. At this juncture, I said, what would Jesus' condition have been? And Myrtle gazed, locked with mine. He replied with authority. There was absolutely no doubt that Jesus was dead. Okay. Well, our story ends with Jesus was dead. But we all know that that's not the end of the story. That's why when you look at the cross behind the pulpit, you know, Jesus isn't there, is he? So now, not only does the woman know that she's a sinner, but she also knows like us that she can hear those sweet words, your sins are forgiven. And you remember, if you've been forgiven much, you'll love Jesus much. I'll have the men come down and we'll do the communion then. I'm just going to pray and just kind of prepare your hearts for communion. Oh, Father, you've asked us to come and remember you. And today we've had a pretty graphic memory of what we need to remember. Just what you had to go through just to say those words, your sins are forgiven. Uh, that's a tremendous love. You said no no greater love as a man than to lay down his life for his friend. And you did way more than that. Because what we read was just the physical torture. We have no idea of the spiritual torture you went when you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we thank you that you love us enough to do that. And as we remember you today, we pray that we can remember our sins so that we'd be able to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.